Let us pray. Gracious God, we are so busy. We are so busy building and grasping. We are so busy designing the perfect life. We pray that you might come in and disrupt our plans and turn us into receivers, receivers of grace and mercy. Open our hearts that we might receive a word from you, a word that brings life. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we continue our stint through the good news according to Mark. If you remember last week, Jesus was talking about the inevitability of his arrest, death, and resurrection. Peter, his closest follower, told him it was crazy talk, and in response, Jesus got even more crazy. He said he was not only destined for death on his way to resurrection, but anybody who wanted to follow him had to expect the same. Take up your cross, he said, if you want to follow me. Gotta die, Jesus said, if you want to rise again. This week, Jesus and co. are passing through Galilee, where Jesus first called them all to come and follow him in the first place. Jerusalem is the end goal where Jesus says the deed is going to go down. And this week it's clear that the disciples still aren't getting the message. So he turns to his disciples in a quiet, private moment and he tells them again what he told them last week. The Son of Man is to be betrayed, he says. The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him and three days after being killed, he will rise again. So it's the second time Jesus has said this, but it says the disciples didn't understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. I, I find that hilarious. I don't know about you. They still don't get it, but they don't want to let on that they still don't get it. And then they come to Capernaum where Jesus began his ministry and they buckled down in a house for the night. And the disciples must have been bickering for the last stretch because Jesus asks them, what were you all arguing about on the way? And I mean, I just picture myself with my own children, you know, looking into the rearview mirror. What are you guys arguing about now? And it says they were silent. You know, you can picture that as well. What are you guys arguing about? Nothing, nothing. They were silent because it says, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I mean, I imagine my children looking off to the wall or the ceiling, they're silent because somehow they know it's something they shouldn't be doing. Arguing about who's the greatest, about who's the best, who's the most honored disciple. And so in response, Jesus does a little teaching. Jesus always eases them in gently. Well, at least most of the time. He folds his legs in the posture of a wise man and he gathers all 12 of the disciples, the inner circle who'd been arguing about greatness together. 
Whoever wants to be first, Jesus says, whoever be wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. I mean, I love the translation we use, but it takes the edge off of what Jesus is saying. It's true, but it's got more edge to it. Here, Jesus says, you want to be great, you need to learn to be a slave. Not just a servant, but a slave of the least. He says this because the disciples, what the disciples really are fighting over is power. Who gets to share in Jesus' power? Jesus is the Messiah, after all, the king sent by God to restore God's people and set the world right. And importance in the Roman world is all about status, how much power you have over other people, how high you can climb the social ladder, how much money, how many slaves, how much influence, what you can get done. And Jesus, if he's the Messiah, I mean, he's got to be pretty powerful, right? And power is a scarce resource. There's only so much to go around, so they try to grab onto it while they can. Try to get in. Well, But Jesus, on the other hand, has shown them by his life an example of servanthood. Healing the sick, feeding the poor, showing the mercy and, of love and friendship to people who other people say are unclean. People who don't have anybody else. And he says... It'll all come to its climax on the cross where he's going to give everything away. Jesus' whole life pattern and ministry is one of kenosis, which is just a fancy Greek word for self-giving, self-emptying love. Unconditional love. Embracing suffering, humiliation, and death, giving up all power, status, and glory, Jesus will do this for the sake of the world. He's told them this several times now. So in fighting over who's the greatest, the disciples clearly don't get it because Jesus' power is a different kind of power. So Jesus decides that an illustration is in order. He's got, Jesus always has these really good Sunday school instincts. So he takes a child and he plunks a child in their midst and then he takes the child in his arms. And he says, whoever welcomes a child like this in my name not only welcomes the child, they welcome me. And they not only welcome me, they welcome the one who sent me meaning God. I mean, it sounds pretty nice to us. We generally think children are extremely important. We live in a society where we believe children, in general, are very worthy of love, care, and security, but not so much in Jesus' world. In the Roman world, children are essentially non-entities. Children are basically useless until they become adults. I guess you could still believe that, but still love them. They're weak, they're unproductive, they depend on other people for food, shelter, safety. You're not going to attract anybody important if you're spending all your time hanging out with kids. Peter Marty puts it well when he says this. He says that quite explicitly, 
Children live in a receiving mode of existence. A receiving mode of existence. They aren't useful. They can't further the organizational cause. They can't provide the cash to do it either. Like they're the leeches on everybody else. Lowest of the low in Jesus' world. And what's interesting here, though, is that most scholars believe that in pointing to children, Jesus doesn't just mean children. In one sense, he literally means children. But in another sense, he's speaking symbolically. Lamar Williamson says that it means anyone in need of help. The great 19th century evangelist John Wesley says here child means in years or in heart. Basically, anybody who lives in that receiving mode of existence. Children, disabled people, the poor and the broke, women who are husbandless in Jesus' world so they have no way of making a living, prostitutes, criminals, illegal immigrants, and other miscreants like that. Basically, he's talking about anybody who, in their weakness and their powerlessness, has to depend on other people. And Jesus says, if you receive anybody like this, and when you serve them like a slave, that's when you're somehow mysteriously receiving me in your midst. Not only me, you're receiving the very presence of the creator of the universe. Whenever you receive anybody in the receiving mode of existence. In the end, the disciples' problem is that they think and act just like everybody else. That following Jesus is their ladder from powerlessness to power, a leg over other people. Maybe they even wanted it. Wanted the power so they could do some good. I mean, I dream all the time about, you know, whether I came into millions of dollars and the good that I would do with it. There's this good drive sometimes. But Jesus says, if you want to be great, get down in the mud and become a slave. To be great, Jesus says, you've got to follow in my footsteps. Jesus welcomes and embraces the least. So to be, the, to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to become a slave to the least. Jesus' way is, you know, it's downwardly mobile. The path is less like an elevator to the penthouse suite than it is like a cross that takes you six feet under, real close to the ground. Greatness is not defined by power. Jesus tells us that it's defined by how you receive the most powerless. If you entertain the powerless in your midst, you are receiving the power at the heart of all things. It's a paradox, but that's what the disciples still don't get. And the truth is that it's easy for us to stand here with the foresight of 2,000 years of history in a modern welfare state and shake heads, our heads at the disciples for not getting Jesus. 
But the reason why it's in the Bible isn't to tell us about how foolish or incompetent a small group of people were 12 to 2,000 years ago. It's there because we too are just as likely to misunderstand Jesus or fall short. Whether we stand in the disciples' shoes or the shoes of those whom Jesus welcomes with open arms. We're just as likely to need a reminder. Maybe that's why worship is weekly. Maybe you forget by Saturday. We're just as likely to act like everybody else, just as likely not to get it. Now, for us today, the good news in this passage, I say good news, because it's always good news. The good news in this passage actually points us in two directions. The first direction is towards those of us who are literally children or symbolically, figuratively children. Those of us who live in that receiving mode of existence, or at least do most of the time. I mean, who knows? Maybe each of us is in that receiving, needs to be in that receiving mode of existence sometime or another. Too old to do much carry or carry much more than 10 pounds. Too sick or not mentally stable enough to hold down a job. Too depressed to get off drugs. Too poor to put much in the plate. Too mean for anybody to care about what happens. The good news is this, Christ's arms are open wide for you. And what do I mean by that? Where everybody else sees you as unproductive, not useful, as opposed to all those law-abiding, good, tax-paying citizens, where everybody sees you as a nuisance, where everybody else looks at you with a sideways glance and won't give you the time of day. It means that God, the love at the heart of all things, sees you for who you are. And loves you just as you are. And God receives you, just as you are, without precondition. What's the catch? No catch. And not only does God see you, love you, and receive you as you are, God is with you, and God is for you. God is on your side. Jesus is the servant Lord. The greatest one proves his greatness by stooping down to place himself in the lowest place as a slave. God is not only with you in your struggles, God has taken common cause with you to bring you out of the depths. 
And this community of faith exists to receive you as Christ has received you. And to, like Christ, take up the cross in easing and bearing your burdens. Without condition. Though we may fall short, and <laughs> we may even fall short most of the time. Here, God is giving you what you truly need. Like I said, we may fall short. But God is giving you what you need. Which brings us to the second direction that grace comes at us in this text. I think grace actually comes at us. Don't duck. The second direction, it comes at those of us who are not normally in that receiving mode. Those of us who consider ourselves self-sufficient. Those of us who have achieved what the world considers great, or at least we're on the way. Those of us who have been blessed in coming to faith and having our lives changed, all those good things. For us, Jesus' disciples like that, it's a reminder that our life together isn't just about ourselves. It isn't just about climbing the ladder of spiritual growth or about what we achieve to gain something from God. It's a reminder that we are created in the image of Christ to minister to each other, to serve each other. True greatness for a church is found in how the little ones are received. No matter how many people show up, no matter how good the music is, no matter how, you know, more handsome than me, the preacher is. <laughs> you know, they're like, that Ryan's sure ugly, but his church sure is welcoming. <laughs> That's, that would be my dream to hear that, actually. True greatness for a church comes only in the imitation of Jesus, the one who became a slave, the servant Lord. The invitation, actually for us, like I said, it's good news. It's no longer to see ourselves just as givers, right? People who have stuff to share with other people. But also to see ourselves, too, as receivers. To adjust ourselves into the receiving mode. In receiving those who are new, those who are strangers, those whose lives are a mess, those who don't have much and don't have much to give. Those who we find difficult, even. Jesus offers us a promise. He promises that in receiving children and others in the receiving mode, we are actually receiving him the risen Christ himself. Because God is bringing us a gift. A gift that if we trust, if we stick out by the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll be blessed as individuals and as a church community, and it will change us for good. 
we adjust ourselves into the receiving mode, Christ promises us this blessing based on the gift of the children he sends us. And really, if you take a look at your fellow pew sitters, you can see this blessing bearing some fruit. Richard Topping, the principal of Vancouver Theology, told me when he visited as a guest preacher this past year that one way he saw God's kingdom coming together is the fact that we aren't all the same. We aren't all the same class of people or the same age or the same sexual orientation, the same interest, same background, and some of us are liberal and some of us are conservative. That's like major diversity in this United Church of ours. Givers and receivers both. And this is what Jesus says is what greatness for a church looks like. Something we, like the disciples, so often forget. It's not money, not influence over the community, not even numbers. It's the weak and the strong bound together in a common life. Where the strong kneel in service and the weak are lifted up in love to be strengthened to then serve in their own way. Where givers become receivers and receivers are given what it takes to give. And on and on and on and on a common life gifted to us by grace, by the unconditional love of God. So, whether you see yourself as someone who has it together, a self-sufficient giver, or if you see yourself at the bottom of the pile, perpetually in need, always in the receiving mode, Either way, today Christ is giving each of us exactly what we need. The ministry of each other. Because that's how the Spirit settles into a church. Where the greatest of all is the servant of all, where we all see ourselves and each other as brothers and sisters to our holy brother Jesus, all on the receiving end of the love as children of one divine parent. We're already seeing it. May each of us, givers and receivers alike, continue to open ourselves to receiving this precious gift. And may we let it change us. Let it change you. Amen.